engine light on? Take the guesswork out of your check engine light with O'Reilly Veriscan. It's free and provides a report with solutions based on over 650 million vehicle scans verified by ASE certified master technicians. And if you need help, we can recommend a shop for you. Ask for O'Reilly Veriscan today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, save on select steel battery tools. Right now, save $50 on the FSA 57 battery trimmer set. Real steel. Find yours at steeldealers.com. With AK-10 battery and AL-101 charger, offer valid for limited time only while supplies last. See participating dealer for details. As a guide and hunter, I've spent thousands of days in the field. This show is about translating my hard-won experiences into tips and tactics that'll get you closer to your ultimate goal, success in the field. I'm Remy Warren. This is Cutting the Distance. Welcome back, everyone, to Cutting the Distance podcast. This week, we are heading to the, I can call it the giant mail sack. This is the, I tried a new system, and it worked out outstanding i would say uh, the mail sack is full to the brim we had 527 questions so far so i'm going to be i think a lot of these uh normally sometimes I'll, I'll get a question i'll go real in depth but it might be fun to just kind of run through as many as i can because there's so many hopefully some of you can get your questions answered and just kind of like rapid fire there's a few that i'll take a little bit more time on and some of these I'll be reading for the first time as I see them and read them to you. I'll try to find people's names, but some of them I might not be able to uh, find the name just the way that this we did it this week. So we did it. I did a post and then uh, if you missed it and then people on Instagram and then people put their questions in there and then I was going to go scroll through. I just kind of hit the top comments thing and going to scroll through and read some of these questions the ones that I like and stuff like that. So we are going to get down to business and start answering your burning questions on cutting the distance mail sack edition. Here we go. First question comes from Jesse. He says, what's the biggest challenge you find to filming and documenting a hunt? I think that for me personally, you know, I've done a lot of solo filming. I've also done filming with crews and other things. And I think that for me, at the it's the end product that when the video comes out, the one thing I find the most challenging is how do you tell an entire hunt story 
in a short amount of time because there's so many things that go into a hunt, uh, whether it's, you know, the journey getting there, the the hiking. It's like all the stuff. I feel like the thing that makes the hunt is all the stuff in between you don't see or don't have the time to show. So it's like, how do you portray uh, just as an example, the BC stone hunt that I just recently went on is like, you know, almost over two weeks of backcountry hunting and not really seeing much as far as sheep and, and being unsuccessful. But also it's like, how do you tell the story of like this time passage, this like struggle and make it seem like where the person watching it can understand like, oh man, these guys were really grinding it out. How do you make the, the end video actually feel like you were on the hunt? And I think that that's the biggest struggle. So it's, it's like understanding how to capture that and making sure to get those points, but also being creative in a way that's like people are going to watch it and it's entertaining. And I think that that's probably the hardest part when it comes to uh, between self-filming or having people film me. I've, at this point, I've actually almost feel like I, I prefer filming myself because I know what I'm doing, what's going on. You know, if something spooks, it's on me and I don't have to feel like, oh, somebody else messed it up. Um, but I'm getting used to you know, having somebody else around. And I, f I find what, when somebody else is filming, it's actually more like when I'm guiding where it's like, okay, you got to factor in all the uncontrollable things for everyone with you. And that actually is kind of a new challenge and, it, and it's fun for me as well. So that's what I think on that. Next question comes from Jay Allen Smith. He says, if money was no object, what hunt would you go on? Ooh, that's a very, very good question. And it would definitely be some kind of sheep hunt. I think one thing that uh, I've always wanted to do would be blue sheep in Nepal, but still, uh, after an unsuccessful attempt, stone sheep is pretty high at the top of my list. And, uh, it would be sheep somewhere, anywhere. I just love the idea of sheep hunting or even just going to some exotic place like Nepal or, uh, somewhere in mid Asia, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, again, uh, some pretty cool spots in there. So something along those lines would, would definitely be at the very top of my list. Joe Dibble asks, how can the world combat all the bugling sheep field photo poses? That's a great question. I've been seeing more and more like sheep photos where the, uh, the sheep's nose is straight up in the air. And I, I, I just, I haven't really fully grasped why that pose is the pose. If it shows off the curl better, I don't really know. I don't think it does. Um, so I'm not really sure where that came from or how that came about. I see a lot more and more lately where it's like sheep nose up in the air. Um, I, I just like, I like field photos that really sh display the animal. Um, you know, I think sometimes people are like, oh, that guy's way far back and whatever. It's like when I take a, a photo of something that I've harvested, it's like, I don't really care to me being in it. I just want to really showcase the animal. So any photo that really showcases that animal and just really says like, oh, this is a really cool animal, just kind of like pay homage to whatever we've hunted. I know like non-hunters really don't understand that aspect. But for me, it's like when I take a photo, a field photo, uh, in many ways, it's like that's that's a memory that is it's going to last forever. I look at those photos all the time. I go back and look through those photos and I really remember the hunt. Same with like the European mount or the, the even a full mount of whatever I've hunted. It's like some it's a way to remember the hunt in a way like once the meat is gone, the memory of that animal journey, the whole experience is easily accessible through the photos and through having the antlers or horns around. And so I always like to do the best I can with those photos. I think that, you know, when it comes to sheep, they're one of the coolest, prettiest animals out there. One of the funnest species to be able to have the cool opportunity to hunt. Um, 
however you like to remember that experience is cool. Uh, but I feel like there's better ways to showcase the animal than the bugling sheep photo as well. I don't know where that came from. Maybe uh, on some sheep though, you know, you can kind of tell like, okay, this is like a, maybe it's a good look at how far it curls. I, I don't really know. Um, I'm like, man, it doesn't make it look bigger or smaller or tell too much about it. But I like when it's a natural angle so I can see the drop, see the curl, see the, see the sheep personally. Aaron here asks, what is your idea of the perfect client when guiding? That's a great question. Actually, a couple people uh, really, really wanted to know the answer to that. So, okay. As a, just as a, as a hunting guide, there's a couple, a couple things. First off, uh, you know, somebody that's just willing to enjoy the experience, you know, that shows up and is like, man, I'm here to enjoy the hunt. If it's somebody that's like, all I want to do is kill something. It makes it very difficult because there's a lot of days in between being successful and, and actually going on the hunt. You know, when you hire a guide, the guide's there to provide a hunting experience, not to kill. I mean, the goal, the end goal is to be successful and kill an animal, but sometimes you're limited by the person you're hunting with. So when somebody shows up in shape, uh, has been practicing shooting, that is huge. Those are the two biggest factors in being successful when you're on a guided hunt for like Western type hunting, mountain hunting, anything like that. So if you, if you can do those two things, you're going to be in a lot better position than just having a good positive attitude. You know, picking a hunting buddy is a very difficult thing because you want somebody that you enjoy being around. And so just being somebody that's, that takes the experience in is like, man, you know, we hiked up this mountain and we didn't see anything that day, but we struggled for it and we put in the effort, but you know, so, something works out, something didn't work out, just like enjoying the experience of the hunt. And generally those are the people that, that find success because they're willing to go day in, day out, hunt hard, but also they're just more enjoyable to be around. And then to be a hundred percent honest, you know, if, if you're a professional guide, I'll, I'll just say this for all the guides out there, you know, tip your guide well. Like, I mean, I've lived off of tips for a very long time from clients and I have like this, this, like it's a double-edged sword. Cause I'm kind of like, man, the whole idea of tipping is kind of stupid. But then also I've like had to live like if without the tips, I wouldn't survive. So, um, you know, a guy that's like very appreciative of the experience, very appreciative of the work put in, but it also, I mean, it's, it's double-edged too, because, you know, you got to have a good guide, you know, a guide that really like you can tell is, is working his ass off. And, you know, if you got a lazy guide and, you know, then it just, it makes the whole experience bad too. So I think part of that is just dependent on like the guide that you have. And, um, you know, you can't be a perfect client if you have a bad guide <laughs> in many ways, but, uh, if you've got a good guide and he's, he's working his butt off and doing everything in his power to find success for you, um, you know, enjoy the experience, enjoy, like pay attention, learn, listen, because, you know, he's an expert in what he's doing or should be. And, uh, you know, if, if you, if you just take in the things that he's saying and, and follow along and whatever, then I think you'll be a lot more successful and you'll have a great trip. So that's my thought on that. Kenny says, how many pairs of underwear do you pack? Ooh, depends on how long underwear I, I would, if I had to, if I had to say, let's say I've got a limited amount of space and weight, I would take more socks than underwear. I can tell you that much. Like if I'm on a week long trip, I'd maybe bring in one change of underwear um, uh, but I would take more pairs of socks because it's nice to 
like if your socks get wet, then your feet kind of get messed up. I like to protect my feet. Um, and I just use like a parasynthetic, um, generally under armor. What are they? Uh, I don't know. Fairly popular underwear, I guess. Um, like synthetic material that doesn't really, it's like antimicrobial. You can, you could like literally, as long as you've got another pair, you can wash it off in a stream, hang it out to dry. It dries super fast if there's sun and you can kind of swap those around. It's hard to kind of wash socks out because they don't dry as easily. So I'd say a couple, one generally, maybe more if it's like a really long trip. But for the most part, I put my weight in socks. Drew says, want to hear about that new bow. Yeah, so I'm shooting now a Matthews V3X. That's their newest version of it. Um, you know, a lot of I got a lot of questions about the new bow and why this bow and in particular and kind of my whole bow setup. I think out of the 500 and something questions, 400 of them are about my bow. So I think what I'm going to do, I'll do, how about I'll do this? I'll I'll make a YouTube video, put it up on my Remy Warren YouTube account, going through all the features of just my bow setup arrows, broadheads, thoughts on all the things just to kind of do that a little bit more in depth. It might be kind of cool. I've never done anything like that on there, but it's a good place to do it. So we'll do that. So you can go cruise over um, to my YouTube channel and see if you want to like check out my entire bow setup. But I think, you know, for, for me personally, when it comes to a hunting bow, there's a lot of features that I, I really want. I want something that holds the tune really well. Um, because it's like I'm traveling around a lot or whatever. And I want that bow to be shooting where it was shooting when I was practicing. So fewer moving parts, fewer things to go wrong with it. Um, I like simplicity in it. And I like something that's very quiet. Uh, when you when you have, you know, my thought is this. Like if I go and let's see, a couple of years ago, I was just like, was on a, you know, had a tag, traveled a long ways. I only had a short amount of time to hunt. I hiked I don't even know, like in the three days, 50 miles, got on a deer, it was sleeping and it like my setup at the time was super loud and the buck jumped the string and my arrow was sitting in the bed where the deer should have been. It should have been the difference between a dead deer and a deer that ran away was the noise of my setup, you know? So I was like, the thing I really like about this new Matthews boat, it's so quiet. I have yet to, I mean, knock on wood, I mean, it's not that it can't happen, but I've yet to have anything jump the string. Uh, just last week, I shot an axis deer at like a pretty good at a range that I probably would never shoot an axis deer at because, you know, they generally jump the string and like no string jump, perfect shot. I'm like, that's what I want. I want to put the arrow where it should go and not have anything hear it. And I've got a pretty heavy setup too. So you can check more out about that on the video. Um, but yeah, well, I so far love that bow. Everything's streamlined. Everything's all together. Uh, quivers real tight up against it, so not you know bucks the wind really well. Like in windy conditions, mountain hunting, spot and stock, everything's really tight in there, and I I really like that. Um, I really like that about it. Next question comes from Justin. He says, "Hey Remy, love the podcast. I'm a new hunter and wonder if you have any tips on navigating heavily hunted public lands without messing up other people's hunts." Yeah, that, that's a really good question. And it got a, a lot of people were curious about the same thing. Um, so here's the thing, you know, when you're on public land and there's other hunters around, people are going to be bumping into people. It's just, it's just a, it's just a factor of it. It's almost something you got to factor in at the beginning, but I will say, don't do stupid stuff. Like if you hear someone 
Like, let's say you're in an area and you're, it's a trailhead. Okay. Well, you don't know exactly where those people are going to hunt. So yeah, cars are going to maybe stack up at certain trailheads or whatever. Um, one thing I would do is like, if you look at an area and you're like, okay, this is enough room for one person or two people to hunt and you're the fifth car in there, you know, maybe just try to find somewhere else. You don't need to be walking in on people. If it's an archery elk season and you're like, you see a you know, you're, you're like in there a little bit later and there's a bugle going on. And it's like, man, you're probably going to walk in on somebody bugle. Like if you hear somebody bugling an elk and an elk bugling, like don't, don't go interfere with someone else's hunt intentionally. There's going to be those times where you just randomly bump into people. But what I like to do is like figure out where people are at and then go somewhere else. Um, that's kind of my strategy or just get up early and be there first. And people are going to bump into you. People are going to probably mess up some things, but I kind of hunt planning and knowing that I'm going to be bumping into people. I could see if it's your first time or whatever, just kind of feeling uncomfortable, like, oh, here's this one trailhead to access a, a bunch of area. And there's already vehicles there. I don't want to walk in anywhere. And it feels like, oh, there's nowhere to hunt. I've, I've run into those situations too, in like new spots where I'm like, okay, this place is full. This place is full. All my plans kind of got full. And then I just try to look for those places in between where it's like, well, maybe, you know, maybe here's a spot where it's not as full and maybe there's not as many elk here or deer here, but it's a place where I can kind of get away from people. And then there's the other thought of like, sometimes you get to his place and there might be vehicles and you are like, well, I'm going way back here and you get back there and you don't see anyone. So I think it's just being like, literally the golden rule applies everywhere. Just treat other hunters how you want to be treated. If you were working an animal or doing something and you think that that might mess up or interfere with someone else, don't do it. But also, you know, take the opportunities that you see and, and don't worry about like being messed up or whatever, just hunt. And then if something happens, it happens. So I think that goes for that, that pretty much the way that I look at it. Cameron says, what's the best way to close the distance on elk? through oak brush it's super loud hard to see through very hard to sneak into archery range any tips and there was actually a really good comment in here uh, which is the same thing that i would describe he says uh keep a diaphragm in the mouth and if you make some noise you make out some use some muse when i'm hunting elk in loud country i've got that call like in my mouth ready to go i might be walking around cracking sticks and whatever and just every now and then a lot of time elk i mean they're noisy animals they hear noise it's that unnatural noise so anything that might be on the outside of your pack like if you've got your spotting scope tripod on the outside of your pack or what have you and it's scraping and hitting the brush it's going to make an, an unnatural noise but the net so i just move everything in try to make as little noise as possible you know you don't want your pack like scraping up against the brush soft clothing works really nice um if it sounds like natural moving, natural cracking, and just like walking, stopping, walking, stopping, not just pure snappage the whole way, uh, throwing out some cow calls, making some sounds like elk. A lot, a lot of the time you might get an elk right there to either come in, make noise, or just kind of like stand up, look, and then go back to their thing after you kind of quiet down and stay still. So there's a lot of things you can do to kind of trick the ears of an elk and by kind of trying to sound like an elk yourself. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. 
book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. This episode is brought to you in part by O'Reilly Auto Parts, who are in the business of keeping your car on the road and also keeping you happy. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. I use the O'Reilly by me. It's right in downtown where I live. And the team there is super knowledgeable. When you got questions, they're happy to help you out. It's a great store to go into. The team at O'Reilly Auto Parts, they can test your battery for free in or out of your car. And don't ignore your check engine light. Ask for O'Reilly Veriscan today, a free diagnostic service exclusively at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Need your windshield wipers replaced? Brake light fixed? Quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop to get some help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in the store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'Reilly Auto, O-R-E-I-L-L-Y, O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way that they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. All right, Jack asks, how do you keep your head in the game when being solo for multiple day hunts? That's a great question. Yeah, I think for the most part, I kind of like look at it as it's it's an adventure and I can't really get down on the times that things go bad. There's many, it, it's super easy to get your head in this negative space. I've fallen into it before um, on solo hunts, on hunts with people, you know, you kind of get in this like, oh man, it's not going to happen. Oh, this mistake happened. But you really just have to keep positive. Anything can happen around the corner. You're, I like to always say like, you're literally the difference between the best day and the worst day hunting is a split second. And so it's two or three seconds. And so you're just looking for those good two or three seconds, staying optimistic, pumping yourself up, giving yourself a little bit of a pep talk. It's like, all right, man, you're tired, but today could be the day just around that next corner. Like I, I always keep this super positive attitude, even when things aren't looking great. It's like, oh yeah, I've got, um, torrential winds and I drank bad water and I feel like crap and I'm not seeing anything and yeah, it's miserable. But if you focus on the things that are bad, that's where your intention's going to go. That's where things are going to go and your head isn't going to be in the game. I always think on the positive side. I always think about the next one. I visualize that next elk I'm going to spot. I visualize uh, how I'm going to do that stock. I visualize all the positive things that could 
be those outcomes. And I, it keeps me focused longer. You know, when you've got that positive attitude, when you're like, it's going to happen, it's going to happen, even if it doesn't look like it's going to happen. I mean, I've been on hunts where it's like five days, haven't seen a single animal. And I'm thinking it's going to happen. I just got to find that one spot. I need those few seconds that like, I find the animal and I can make it happen. And just playing that over and over keeps me in the game. Like it keeps my mind thinking it's going to happen. So I keep looking harder. If I think it's not going to happen, then I get lazy glassing. I get lazy hiking. And to be honest, like I find a lot of success just using that positive attitude to just keep you going to hunting longer, to going further, to hunting harder. So just keeping that glass half full mentality is a huge key factor when you're, whether you're by yourself, whether you're on a hunt uh, with other people, it doesn't really matter. Just keeping that positive mental attitude is as much a part of the hunt as anything else and a, and a huge factor in success, in my opinion. Hunter asks, how do you introduce more people to hunting? I think that there's a lot of ways to introduce people to hunting. I think one of the primary ways is just like the people that you're around. I, I introduced my wife to hunting through food and, and quite a few people. It's like, here's this, this awesome thing that hunters get as a it's like we get to go out we get to harvest our own meat it's delicious and then we get to cook it at home in a way that people enjoy it and by kind of through the food aspect i think a lot of people are very interested in hunting um, i also think to get more people introduced to it is just taking somebody out that wants to do it there's a lot of people out there that are really interested in going out and hunting, but it's, the barrier to entry is very difficult. You need a lot of specialized gear. There's a lot of knowledge. It takes a lot to be successful. Um, there's obviously all these podcasts, you know, YouTube videos, all these other things, but you can probably learn a lot with somebody that has done it and is experienced just taking you out in the field for a day. Um, there's a lot to be said for just that hands-on, like getting you through, getting someone over the hump of like, Hey, let's go out hunting. I know a lot of the, the friends that I have that maybe didn't hunt a lot or kind of new to it or people that I've, I've met and taken out is like that initial, Hey, let's go, let's go hunt chucker. Let's go hunt quail. Let's, let's go. I'll kind of show you the ropes, you know, kind of go over like, this is how you do it. And I think just that getting someone over that hump of like taking them out, makes them feel confident that they could do it. Or even maybe just like gets their, their foot in the door. So, you know, as hunters, if you, if there's somebody that you know, that's interested in it, take them out. Um, and also, you know, kind of show them the ropes. I think that that's the best way as well. Just like take somebody out into the field hunting. Robert asks, Hey Remy, how much prep shooting do you put into your bow before a hunt? Cheers. Uh, that's a good question, Rob. I mean, I, <laughs> let's say like every waking moment that I'm not doing something else. Um, if I'm not hunting, I'm, uh, every day pretty much shoot my bow. Um, I, I, but I also just really love shooting my bow and I like to get a bow, especially when I get a new bow. Um, I like to really get it set up, get it dialed. Like I like to know every little nuance about the bow. Sometimes I might get a bow that I'm like, oh, here's a bow to, to test or whatever. And I don't have a lot of time between hunts, but on those times I shoot my bow like more, I would say like just getting it set up all day, um, shooting it. You know, I, I start sh getting a bow set up through paper and then just a lot of time in the field, um, just doing like, you know, shooting 3D or um, just targets outside. And just kind of really, really getting to know how that bow shoots, how how I shoot it, um, what I can get away with, what I can't, you know. try I try to do like 
a lot of things where it's like, hey, I'm I'm at a weird angle, and okay, how much torque am I? How much hand torque am I putting in this bow? And really just analyzing it and saying, okay, like this is the perfect setup. And then once I get that setup, I like to just kind of keep it, like maintain it. Don't really, um, I don't necessarily need to shoot it as much because I might be out in the field hunting. But even when I'm hunting, like let's say I'm on a backpack trip, I shoot even like in the middle of the day at stumps and other things. I use just those bludgeon saunders bludgeon tips or whatever or I'll bring a couple field tips or whatever have a little target and camp um or maybe just shoot uh, my broadheads at a target and camp have a couple for practice if i'm like you know near a vehicle or at a cabin or whatever um, i'm always shooting my bow like i like to be shooting and, and even in the field like i say you know making sure when when that opportunity arises i want to know i don't want to be like oh maybe i'll get it i want to say when i release that arrow i know in my head 100 percent that it's going to be a, a perfect shot now obviously the animal can move things can happen you can hit things that you didn't see like sticks and things in the way but when i release that arrow i want to say yep that's going to be 100 percent." and the only way for me personally to do that is by practicing enough to know that when i release that arrow it's going to go where it's supposed to Ike asks, what makes you love hunting as much as you do? <laughs> That's a good question because I definitely love hunting. Um, it's just like, I don't know. I, I never get tired of it. I can hunt, you know, I've hunted uh, before I had a family. Um, like well, my most days in the field was 323 days in a single season. That's a, that's a lot, you know, I was guy. That's a lot of guiding, a lot of being out scouting. You know, I, I think probably I've counted some fishing days in there as well. Uh, I also love to go fishing, but, um, I think that the reason that I love it so much and one thing that keeps me is just like, it's always different. I love that. Uh, like growing up as a kid, my favorite movie was Indiana Jones, you know, like that, that, that aspect of adventure. And when I'm out hunting, I think that's why I love like mountain hunting, Western big game hunting, uh, traveling and hunting like international destinations. I love exploring backcountry areas. And like, I like that idea of like kind of venturing into the unknown. Obviously there's pretty much nothing unknown, but for me, it might be, uh, going somewhere. And even in places that I hunt a lot where I'm very familiar with, it's like, you're constantly encountering different things. You know, you could one day be going on the trail and see something you've never seen, or it's just, it's, it's never the same. And I like that feeling of like, I feel like it's an adventure that, that portion of hunting that is like, I'm out there. It's me and the elements. It's like this very wild experience. I'm, I'm chasing something and it's like this very primal, very wild, very adventurous feeling. And that's what I love about it. That's one of the things that I love about it. There's so many reasons that I hunt, but that's to me, one of the major things is like that, that seeking adventure, that challenge and excitement of exploring something new and, and unknown or something wild and, and not, uh, frequented by a lot of people. Uh, Marshall asked, would you bother re trying to stalk in on a bumped animal? Uh, once alerted, how long would it take for a deer elk to relax? Yeah. I, uh, if I bump something, I always continue on the course. Um, it just depends on the situation. Sometimes with elk, like you might bump them, they run two ridges. And then by the time you get over there, they just like didn't even care anymore. Uh, with mule deer, maybe I'd bump it. And it's like, uh, if I went, if they winded you and blew out, you know, maybe I'd give it a lot longer, let them settle down, let them rebed, let them, you know, maybe make a play later. Sometimes you just bump them like, Oh, they heard something they bumped off and you just watch their behavior and decide for yourself. 
uh, when to proceed. But sometimes I will immediately refollow up. And other times it's like, yeah, let's give him an hour. Let's give him a little bit. Let him settle down. The second stock is always harder than the first. It doesn't matter. Like you bump something, they're kind of like a little bit more on, on edge. But as long as I have opportunity and I can like make a play, then I continue to make those plays and, and seek those opportunities, whether it's bumped or not. Um, there's been many times, many animals that have been bumped once and, and made right on the second one, learned from the mistake and, and redid and, and got in and, and made a shot. Josh asks, how did you start? What was the beginning of your hunting? For me, I started as a kid. My dad took me hunting. That's one reason, like, I think that, um, if you got kids, you know, by all means, take them out hunting. It's, it's one of the coolest experiences. It's a great thing. You know, there's a lot of, like I've, I said, you know, the adventure, there's the food aspect. Then there's just like the family aspect of hunting is a thing that we do as a family. Um, you know, for me growing up, I grew up in it. Uh, I could see it being very difficult to get into, to start if you didn't grow up in a family that hunted. But I do have a lot of friends that did not grow up in families that hunted and got into it from someone taking them out. Uh, an uncle, a cousin, uh, you know, someone else like, well, I guess that's still family, but, or family friend taking him out. Uh, my neighbor, like growing up, one of my best hunting buddies was my neighbor. His dad hunted when he was a kid, but kind of didn't hunt. And then, you know, it was like me and my dad hunted. So he'd always take the neighbors with us. Whoever wanted to go was allowed to go. And because of it, he's just like, you know, he's one of my favorite friends to hunt with, even though we don't get a hunt with, we haven't hunted in a while together since it's just, you know, life gets busy, but, um, you know, having somebody take you out is an awesome way to get into it. And I got into it through my family. Jeremy says, what's your favorite big game holiday dish to prepare for your family and friends? Uh, hope you enjoyed your Thanksgiving. Thanks for taking time to share your stories insight with us by far. Yours is my favorite podcast. Thanks, Jeremy. Uh, I would say one of my favorite holiday big game dishes is I love making a Wellington. Um, I do it around the holiday season. It's, uh, if you aren't familiar with it, it's like, essentially I take a, a piece of backstrap. Um, I make like a, I guess it's called you know, like kind of like this mushroom druxel that I put around it, then prosciutto around it, and then like puff pastry. Then I cook it, and it's like it's like a backstrap steak wrapped in pastry, and it's delicious. <laughs> it's like one of my favorite things to eat around the holidays. And I I generally don't cook it other times of year. I don't know why. I think I just like it very. It's like a very special thing. So um, we always cook quite a few around the holiday season, especially with Christmas coming up and stuff. That's a, a definitely a go-to. Another one is just like, I like to do this. Um, I, I call it like my prime rib style backstrap. I'll post a video on that here in the next week or so. Um, if you got my newsletter, if, any, if anybody wants additional information or whatever, I'm going to actually kind of beef that up a bit. But uh, you can go on my website, remywarren.com, sign up for my mailing letter. And I try to put a few things. I'm going to start putting a few more things on there that you get to see before anybody else gets to see it. A little bit of insight and other things. But um, I had a video on there recently and I'll, I'll put it up on YouTube here this, in the coming weeks. Uh, just prime rib style backstraps, my kind of my go-to. It involves just a lot of rosemary and garlic um, that I coat on the top and then uh, cook in the, uh, like brown finish in the oven. And you can pretty much make like any cut into what tastes like prime rib. I just did uh, for Thanksgiving, actually did a full access to your hind quarter. I stuffed it, uh, trussed it up and then put this rosemary garlic on the top, 
put it in the oven and that thing it was a little spiker buck man it was just like the best prime rib you've ever had you know it's just like really really good an entire hind quarter so that's um that's a really good way to do it something to think about all right evan says what factors into choosing whether to stay in one spot or move to another quote-unquote better spot uh that's a good question i think one of the things that i do i like to i move um i know there's some people's like oh sit here and wait it out uh, for me, it's like, if I don't see what I'm looking for, I move on. And sometimes I also judge like what time of the day am I looking in an area? If I look in an area, I'm like, this looks good. And it's like the middle of the day, then I can't actually judge the area on how good it is because I need to look at it at morning or evening. So I might say, okay, well, I'm going to give it an evening. Um, but if I don't see something that I'm looking for, I generally move until I find what I'm looking for. Uh, I'm very mobile. I stay very mobile. Um, there are times where I'm like, okay, this looks really good. And I hunt it for a few days and, and then end up finding something um, because I know it's like, oh, I'm seeing sign. I, it, there's enough country that I can glass, but there's a lot of maybe timber. It's like, okay, there's, there's room for these animals to stay hidden from me. Um, if it's an area that I feel like I cover really well and I'm like, yeah, I've seen everything here and I haven't seen what I'm looking for. Then I just move on. So it really just depends on the spot. Um, but I'd say for me personally, I kind of tend to, be like bouncing around more often than not. Uh, Bobby says, what are your strategies when hunting early season Sitka blacktail? Uh, when it comes to early season blacktail or even like mid season, I feel like every time I've hunted blacktail, it's the same scenario. I like go to the top. I hunt them like I would a goat or a sheep uh, go high, especially if you're talking early in the velvet, you want to be up in the Alpine looking for deer there. A lot of spot and stock, you know, just getting up on a knob, glassing, looking for those bachelor groups of bucks or bucks uh watch them wait for them to bed then sneak in get your stock on well, that is a really 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 fun hunt uh, sitka blacktail hunting kind of all times of year i find like even in those october time frames you know pre-rut um, and even later in the rut some sometimes late season i hunted them in december last year they're down a lot lower we had a couple we'd shoot and the antlers would fall off <laughs> like drag do not drag a late season blacktail by the antlers because they're probably going to shed them off but um yeah so i i do that um early season definitely head high and for most of the season i like to head high it's just where i prefer to find them and like to be in that open glassable alpine country Okay, Greg asks, truck keys, do you take them with you and risk losing them in the field or stash them near the truck and hope nobody finds them? That's a good question. I won't tell you exactly where I put my keys, but I like to have a set on the truck. Um, one thing you might want to look into is getting a lockbox um, and then putting that lockbox underneath your vehicle. So if you're like in an area where you're sketched out about maybe there's like a lot of traffic or whatever, you can lock your keys uh, somewhere on, around your vehicle in a lockbox. I think that's probably the best option because one thing I'm, if I'm with somebody or something happens, I want anybody that gets to the vehicle to be able to just, like drive it. And so I, and I'm always like a little worried about if I, if I lost my keys, you know, sometimes if it's like, Oh, I've got a, I don't know, maybe I flew somewhere, rented a car. I just take the keys with me. But, um, on my own vehicle, I try to, you know, have a lockbox or something where the keys locked away, but, uh, somewhere where you can access it question comes from brandon he says how do you keep your feet warm when it's below 30 degrees fahrenheit i'll use a thousand k insulate boot shoes boots plus thick wool socks still my toes go completely numb after a couple hours great question i get cold feet very easily um, i've had the frostbite before 
I think that plays into it. But um, I use toe warmers. Like, they're super awesome. I And when I use them, um, I don't yeah, – there's a bunch of different brands. I can't remember even the names of some of them. There's the Grabber ones or Gerber – Grabber? Yeah, I think they're Grabber, something like that. Uh, I just get, like, the big party pack at Costco, uh, whatever's available. But um, when I put them in my boots, I put them on top of my toes. So I, like, put it on top of my sock. I found that if I put them underneath, it kind of affects the way that my foot grips the boot in the foot sole, and it rubs weird. So I just stick it on the top of my sock, stick my boot foot in my boot, and they're money, especially if you're sitting. Uh, but even when walking, it might be hot for a lot of people, but I rather enjoy it. Joe asks, do you like mince and cheese pies in New Zealand? Absolutely. Mince and cheese is really good. Pepper steak is my favorite. That's, um, if I got the option, pepper steak it is. Mark asks, do you use chapstick yet? The answer is no, never. Uh, chapstick makes your lips dry. And it's just one of those things I just don't use. I just can't bring myself to using chapstick. Personal preference, but hey. There's everybody's got that thing that they think, eh, that's not for me. And chapstick is one of them. I won't use it ever. <laughs> Question comes from Mitch. He says, do you drink Lion Red or Spates? Uh, spates all the way. I like that Spates. Uh, if you don't know what that is, South Island and New Zealand has some pretty good uh, after hunt beers. The last question comes from Eric. He says, when a deer is moving slowly in your shooting lane, when do you employ the sound to try to stop them? What triggers the decision? I've been too fearful of spooking them, and I've missed two shots on deer that don't stop moving. That's a really good question. I mean, I, I when I spook something, even I make that sound. Um, but on something that's moving and I need it to stop, there's a few things that I always try to do. First, you need if you're bow hunting, you need to be ready and at full draw, especially if it's close. I generally don't like make that noise and then draw back. I want to be drawn, ready, and then I try to anticipate the stop. So it's like, think about, it depends on how far they are uh, when I make that sound. Like if it's an elk, let's say it's an elk across the canyon, I'll use a cow call to stop them. But if they're like behind a tree and they're walking, I generally make that noise right when they're behind the tree so I can get generally one or two steps by the time that sound hits them and they stop out in the open. Um, when it's a deer, whatever, kind of the same strategy. If they're super close though, they might stop right away. So is it just, is that front shoulder kind of comes out into the open where it's like, okay, if he stopped right there, I'd still have a shot. Um, but if he takes one or two more steps, then I still have a shot as well. So I like to kind of anticipate they need time to hear it and then stop. Uh, the further they are, the longer the sound takes to travel to get there. So if it's like an elk, I've, I time it where it's like they're behind something, they're moving and they're going to move to the open. I actually call when they're behind something. So by the time the sound gets there, like it's a rifle shot or something 300 yards away, by the time the sound gets there, that they'll take those extra couple steps and stop. Uh, maybe they stop behind something and you got to do it again. If it's something close, I'm bow hunting and it's like, oh, here's a shooting lane. I've got it. It's 20 yards. I draw back when they're behind something. And then generally as it's like, I try to be settled if I can. Maybe there's only one opportunity. I try to stop them, you know, like when they're in that open, but I try to get it just as they're in the open where their head or something might be obstructed by something else. So it's like, and they look, but they can't see me. If they're close and it's like, okay, vitals are there. Boom. Release the arrow and happy hunter at the end of the trail. So that's what I look for. It's just a timing thing based on how far they are, but I try to get them to stop 
when they're in the open, especially if it's distance rifle shot. Now, if it's close, you know, try to get them to stop in the open, but maybe where they can, maybe they're, they've got uh, something that blocks their head if possible. I mean, that's the perfect scenario. Sometimes you just got to do it. Like you come up over, they bounce out, say it's mule deer or something, come up over the ridge, you spook them and they heard you or maybe saw a little bit, but don't know why they're spooked. I'll make that noise because I've had them bounce two or three bounces, stop, turn and kind of look. And that sometimes gives you enough time for a shot, especially when you're rifle hunting. I appreciate all the questions. I mean, there's so, I got so many questions this week. Um, I really, really appreciate it. I wish I could answer all, all of them. I think that the topics that I picked answered a vast majority. I'll also use this to kind of decide some videos I make in the future and some other things that I do. Um, so thank you guys so much for those, those questions. Maybe we'll have to do kind of a, I don't know, something on social media to answer some more questions. I'll try to go through and, and answer a few of your questions on there. Ones that I missed that I liked, and then maybe we can do some kind of live thing. Uh, later on. So if you don't, you know, you can, you can find me on at Remy Warren Instagram. Uh, you can always go to my website and sign up for my newsletter uh, at the very bottom, just put in your email. That way, if there's some information, some of these things I'm answering or, or got a live thing going on, you know, maybe I'll just advertise it that way, help you find it a little bit easier. I'm looking forward to some of the stuff coming up Christmas season, going to be doing a cool giveaway again. Um, just got some uh, some great hunt topics and other things that we're going to cover. So make sure to tune in for the rest of the year. I appreciate everybody that's sending questions, listening to the podcast, giving us a like and a comment. Uh, thank you guys so much. I appreciate you all. And until next week, how are we going to end this one? Um, I, th I thought out everything about this podcast except the ending. I'd like to leave it a little bit of a surprise. So until next week. Hmm. Maybe I just leave it until next week. Yeah, it's just the way you say it, right? So thank you guys so much. Until next week. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on Seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, save on select steel battery tools. Right now, save $50 on the FSA 57 battery trimmer set. Real steel. Find yours at steeldealers.com. With AK-10 battery and AL-101 charger, offer valid for limited time only while supplies last. See participating dealer for details.